Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 232. My name is Terry Frost and this time around it's comedy and really weird and vengeful cetaceans. So first up there's a comedy from 1976, The Big Bus, starring Joseph Bologna, Stocker Channing and John Beck. And then on to the year later, 1977, for a really funny Dillaretta's joint, Orca, the Killer Whale, starring Richard Harris, Charlotte Rampling and Will Sampson. So yeah, we're deep into the 1970s on this one. And as we all know, the 70s were a very, very weird time. Even the listeners who weren't alive in the 1970s realise that. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way. And I'll start talking about buses and whales. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old. And I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by MP3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around, unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so how is everyone? Um, We're doing pretty okay here because global warming is actually doing us a solid. And it's quite warm at the moment. I just went out to... Wyndham Harbour on along the waterfront and had a nice little coffee and things like that and it was uh, about 25 degrees which is unseasonably warm for Melbourne but then everywhere is either unseasonably cold unseasonably warm, unseasonably dry unseasonably wet all around the world at the moment this is the science fiction future that we're living in um, nonetheless I do appreciate it being warm and they tell us the Bureau of Meteorology at least tells us that we're going to have the coldest winter in a long time so not looking forward to that in fact i just bought another hoodie on the off chance that they're right anyway we've got to kind of accept the fact that the 21st century like every other century that preceded it is going to throw unexpected surprises at us we just have to roll with the punctures curl up in a ball on the ground and hope that the 21st century gets tired of kicking us in the ribs soon so all of that's happening. Um, yeah, weird stuff. Um, I'm not going to go into details. The weird stuff varies depending on your locality. But undoubtedly, wherever you're listening to this in, weird shit has happened locally lately. It's just the nature of the 21st century where anything weird, unusual, tragic, monstrous, or just fuck-witted gets rammed in our faces on a regular basis. It's just the way the century is. So on a much nicer and lighter note, what the fuck have I been watching? Well, a few things, actually. Um, I've done pretty well. I did see Greta Gerwig's movie Lady Bird because I did that with Michaela Simpson on ABC Local Radio, Darwin. It was Michaela's idea, and I thanked her for it on air. And I like it. It's a coming-of-age movie about um, a young girl played by Saoirse Ronan who's coming of age in 2003 in Sacramento, California. She's a bit of an odd person for her area. She's smart, she's funny, and doesn't quite fit in where she is. Uh, Her mother 
played by Laurie Metcalf, is a force of nature. And, of course, it's about mother-daughter relationships as much as anything else, which I kind of liked. I, I, one of the things I said I liked about this cent- or this year, at least, is I'm going to try to see more stories that aren't by white, straight males of middle age. And Lady Bird's definitely that. Um, it's... I really enjoyed it, to be honest with you. I liked it as a film. I think it uh, has a lot of good things to say. It's Greta Gerwig's first directorial solo effort. She did co-direct another movie before this, but I think it really works. She wrote the script as well. And you should see Lady Bird. It doesn't matter whether you're a guy like me or a woman or or whoever you are. Uh, Seeing a quality film with some good acting and some really nice writing is always a pleasure. So... Then, we, then I went from that to um, something that wasn't as good. And I'm going to talk about that more next week with my good friend Grant Watson on the next Martian Driving podcast. And that is the Steven Spielberg adaptation of Ernest Cline's novel Ready Player One. I'm not going to talk much about it except to say that it filled me with inertia. And it's a very pro- problematic movie. And I'm speaking about that from the viewpoint of somebody who was a science fiction geek for the last 50 years, at least, maybe 60. And also a gamer geek from the time when you had to load games onto computers using cassette drives. So I know of what I speak. So I'm going to talk more about that with Grant, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Then I fulfilled that thing I said I was going to do about seeing movies that weren't from a white male straight viewpoint. And I saw Girl Strip, which is um, probably the best buddy comedy I've seen since Step Brothers. It really is hilarious. It's filthy. It's transgressive, which, of course, means I'm going to like it anyway. And it also stars and was written by women of color in America. It's about a group of four friends who have kind of drifted apart a bit. And they get together for a wild weekend in New Orleans. And it changes their lives. Um, there's some really cool stuff in it. There's some really weird stuff in it. There's um, some stuff that you thought you would only ever see in a male kind of buddy comedy. And um, you see it from a female point of view and a female one. You see some really good action with a grapefruit, which I'm not going to tell you more about that, but you need to see that. And it's hilariously funny and well-written, and it's got a heart as well. So I really enjoyed Girl Strip. I really might suggest it for Michaela for us to do on the radio because I think she might like it. Then I watched a Bruce Willis movie, uh, Once Upon a Time in Venice, which is set in Venice, California, not Venice, Italy. And Bruce Willis plays a private eye, and there's a whole bunch of quirky characters and a whole bunch of silly stuff, and Bruce Willis skateboards naked through the streets and all sorts of stuff happens like that meatball action film um he's got to get his dog back it's kind of like john wick light with humor uh john goodman's in it so the the cast is pretty good and a bit of fun famke jansen's in it um yeah it's not good not bad but it was not a waste of time entirely so i did um watch that uh i did also see a Peter Sellers movie with Victor Mature, directed by Vittorio De Sica, called After the Fox, which is about a criminal played by Peter Sellers playing an Italian because um, ethnic casting in 1966 isn't, wasn't what it is today. Um, and it's kind of silly and kind of fun, 
Peter Sellers does a lot less of that stupid mugging that he did in a lot of movies. And um, it's got Brett Eklund in it, who at the time was married to Peter Sellers. As I said, Victor Mature taking the piss out of Victor Mature's persona. Um, and a whole bunch of Italian actors. Uh, Akim Tamarov turns up in there. Uh, it's got a soundtrack by Bakarak, which is kind of fun. And, yeah, um, it's better than I remembered it being. Uh, I've got a problem with Peter Sellers for a lot of ways, and I think that a lot of his comedies dated, particularly things like The Party. I like the gags in The Party, but the fact that he's playing somebody from India kind of doesn't work for me. Blackface doesn't work anymore in the 21st century. But in this one, it's not too bad. Then I watched a movie that I had picked up in Sydney for $7 on Blu-ray at Lawson's down at Pitt Street. So people who know Sydney and know movies know Lawson's. Uh, it's got a lot of DVDs and Blu-rays and records and CDs and things like that. Also picked up a bit of cool music there, which is never a bad thing, when we were up in Sydney uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it is The Black Swan, based on a novel by Raphael Sabatini, starring Tyrone Power, Maureen O'Hara, Laird uh, Craigars in it, George Sanders playing a pirate, uh, Anthony Quinn's in it. It's just a lot of fun. It's a standard 1940 swashbuckler in Technicolor, and it was okay. I mean, it wasn't top end Tyrone Power swashbuckling, but the supporting cast really made it work. Uh, people like Thomas Mitchell were in it, another great character actor. And uh, yeah, there's a bit of sword play, a bit of um, deceit and the weird thing about it is that George Sanders is almost unrecognisable. He's got a big ginger beard and ginger curly hair and fake eyebrows and a putty nose. But it's still George Sanders playing um, a pirate, which is kind of cool. So uh, if you get a chance, the Black Swan's not a waste of time. But again, not at the top end of its game. The only other thing I saw is a Netflix science fiction movie called The Titan starring Sam Worthington. It's the usual eco-collapse kind of thing where um, people have decided that the only survival for the human race is for them to adapt themselves to living on Saturn's moon Titan, which requires a whole bunch of genetic engineering, an extreme amount of it. And Sam Worthington plays a soldier who's recruited for the program. They all go to live on the Canary Islands because it's away from all of the chaos and the collapse that's happening elsewhere. And... Um, yeah, Sam Worthington's not a good actor. There are a lot of people have said that, and though it pains me to say that about an Australian actor, Sam Worthington couldn't act his way out of a Stanislavski lesson. He's really not good. He's effectless. He doesn't react to the other actors very well, and he doesn't, you know, he's basically he catches checks. And that kind of drags the movie down. The fact that it's got the standard beats that a, a movie like this has, and it's like a man turned into monster. It's a little like there were a couple, I think, was it Cold Hands, Warm Heart in The Outer Limits with Shatner in it, I think. Um, it's a, basically, it's another replay of that kind of a trope with somewhat updated special effects and a little bit of body horror thrown in. It's on Netflix, so it's not going to really cost you much to watch it if you're interested in it. But I can't really recommend The Titan. I like the idea of Netflix doing kind of mid-range science fiction movies and playing with ideas. Very much in favour of that kind of thing. And I think, contrary to the utterances of Steven Spielberg, there's nothing that I can see to say that Netflix movies shouldn't be nominated for Oscars if they are of sufficient quality. But this one isn't. 
this one really uh if you're a bit of a completist you might want to watch it but it's no better than a lot of other stuff out there and there's no surprises or delights for you in watching the titan so that's about it for what i've been watching um i'm going to take a break and play the trailer for the big bus and when i get back from that i'm going to talk about the big bus starring joseph bologna and stockard channing so sit back for the trailer There have been disaster movies about fiery infernos, airports, luxury liners, earthquakes, and lighter-than-aircraft. And now... The Big Bus. Pictures presents the first disaster movie where everyone dies laughing. It's the world's first atomic-powered, non-stop, got-to-be-seen-to-be-believed way to travel from New York to Denver. Why Denver? Why not? But the one thing that makes the big bus the comedy event of the year is the passenger list. And the crew. Well, I don't care what anybody says. I did not eat 110 passengers. You yourself said you ate a foot! You eat one lousy foot, they call you a cannibal. Before we get started, Dan, uh, there's something I, I gotta tell you. I got some wacky in my middle ear. I, I can't keep off the shoulders. I gotta get my confidence back. If I can just drive down... <laughs> tell me, Father, why don't we worship a steam engine? Because we can see a steam engine. No, I don't buy that. But... We can also see God. Not as good as a steam engine. I forgot to make a wish. If there should be a radiation leak, God forbid. We can't live without each other. We never should have gotten the divorce. How long are you divorced? Six hours. Give it a chance. I was the only one who had the courage to put an IUD in a rabbit. I've only got six months to live. Well, start wasting time. Hop in. There is nothing quite like a nice, leisurely cross-country ride. Especially when it's on the big bus. I just realized both of these movies were released by Paramount, so a bit of a coincidence there. The last slot I did on Martian Driving were released by Hammer, so I suppose it's valid. Um, yeah, so this one, The Big Bus, is a 1976 American comedy about a big bus going from uh, New York to Denver for some odd reason. It was directed by James Frawley and stars John Bo- uh, Joseph Bologna, John Beck, Stockard Channing, and a great supporting cast. We've got Ned Beatty in there, in there sorry. Rene Abergenois, um, Bob Dishy, Murphy Dunn, who was in 
the Blues Brothers playing Tommy Joyce, the guy who runs the piano bar on the big bus. Jose Ferrer as Iron Man. I kid you not, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. Ruth Gordon playing a very similar role to the one that Helen Hayes played in Airport in 1970. And, of course, this is a disaster movie, very much in the flavour of the long string of disaster movies that preceded it over the previous six years since Airport came out in 1970. Uh, And it takes the piss out of it. Now, this isn't quite to the level of taking the piss as Flying High Slash airplane was in 1980 but this one came four years earlier and it is a lot of fun uh the jokes aren't slapped against the wall as hard as they were in airplane but they are still very funny and i like them uh there are some subtle jokes there are some not subtle jokes there are sight gags and other kinds of gags in there so basically they throw everything into the pot and stir it up and try to make it work By the way, I've got to say thanks to good friend of the podcast, Morris, who gave me the DVD of The Big Bus. He was uh, getting rid of some things to make some space, and so he gave me a copy of The Big Bus and Charlie Chaplin's Monsieur Verdoux, which I may well do in a future podcast. So props to Morris for that, and, and thanks again, mate. But, yeah, I hadn't seen The Big Bus for a very long time, so... All of the gags and things were a a bit of a surprise to me. Now, Jose Ferrer plays a guy called Iron Man, who's the villain. His henchman slash brother is Stuart Margolin, playing a guy called Alex. Now, the reason he's called Iron Man is not because he's Tony Stark in any way, but because for the whole movie, Oscar-winning actor Jose Ferrer is in an iron lung. Uh, he actually, he and his girlfriend get it on in the Iron Lung as well, which is kind of amusing. Iron Lungs are, are something they don't have anymore. I think there are only a few people left in the world who unfortunately need to live in an Iron Lung. It's a polio thing that uh, kind of got started in the early 1950s with a lot of the polio plagues, and they found that people whose uh, lung muscles were paralysed basically had to live in Iron Lungs, which were these big tanks from the neck down where basically the um, pressure inside the tank would be raised and lowered to help their lungs fill with oxygen. It was the best way to do it at the time, unfortunately. And so an iron lung joke is probably not that funny, but the fact of a major kind of almost a James Bond style villain being in an iron lung and doing a lot of things in there uh, is kind of fun. And I like the idea of a famous character actor being able to do his entire role just laying on his back. Now, there have been other people that have done that. Um, Gerald's Game being a big example there. But, um, yeah, that it kind of works and it kind of doesn't work by 21st century standards. But anyway, we've got some other people in the supporting cast. Richard Mulligan and Sally Kellerman playing Claude and Sybil Crane who are a couple who have an incredible love-hate-passion relationship. We have Lynn Redgrave as a socialite, channeling Catherine Hepburn in there with a kind of Catherine Hepburn accent. Uh, we've got some other some other cool character actors in there. Vic Tabak turns up as another bus driver. Richard B. Shaw, who's a guy who only has six months to live and doesn't have anything to live for until um, Lynn Redgrave, being the nymphomaniac fashion designer that she is, in the movie decides to brighten up his day 
Uh, we also have a guy called Bob Dishy playing a veterinarian who has a career crisis. We get a little bit of Larry Hagman playing a doctor. Uh, Howard Hesselman playing Jack, who is the sidekick to Ned Beatty's character Shorty. Um, there's a great bit at the start with Ned Beatty and the um, nuclear material that's going to run the bus, which is hilarious. Then we've got Joseph Bologna, who most people would know from playing King Kaiser in My Favourite Year, the um, Richard Benjamin movie with Peter O'Toole in it. Uh, yeah, a good comedy guy. Died last year, which is unfortunate. But, uh, yeah, he, he kind of... He, he was a weird actor in the sense that he had kind of leading man looks but the sensibility of a comedian so in this kind of a role he's perfectly set there because there are things he has to do which are kind of heroic and he kind of makes it work within his own shtick and um yeah i I kind of like him in this stocker cheney of course everyone knows her from the west wing and other things she at the time she was doing comedy she did some good roles in things like mike nichols the fortune and um, also Peter Falk's secretary in The Cheap Detective, the Neil Simon movie from 1978. She plays the love interest and the daughter of the scientist who invents the big bus. Though why you really need to have an enormous articulated double-decker bus, which has a piano bar up the front upstairs, it has a swimming pool, it also has a bowling alley, it has a dining room, and a whole bunch of other stuff there, and to have an atomic power. There's no real rationale for that. But the bus itself is a pretty awesome prop to have in the movie. Uh, It's called the Cyclops. The reason is it's got one enormous headlight in between the two levels at the front, and at the time it cost about a quarter of a million dollars to make. The interesting thing about it was it wasn't actually a bus. It was two buses joined together, and the guy in the rear bus had to operate the rear bus part of the construction by radio he couldn't see outside the bus so he had to kind of just the two were were bound together in some way but he still had to kind of steer the two bus the back bus while the front bus was doing its stuff it's a clumsy and ugly looking piece of technology but it kind of works for the silliness of the film and one of the things I thought while I was watching this film is there aren't enough really silly movies these days. And this one is pure silliness from front to end. Yes, it has a number of side gags, but they're not the kind of shotgun side gags you get in the Zucker Abram Zucker movies, for instance. They're all on point as far as the plot and the environment and the mise-en-scene are concerned. There's the fact that the um, bus driver himself is ostracized his name's captain dan torrance which is the perfect name for a guy playing a captain in a disaster movie he's ostracized for the fact that everybody thinks he ate 101 passengers when a bus broke down in the desert but it turns out it was his co-pilot who ate them all and gave him some soup which had a foot in it his cold his co-pilot uh shoulders o'brien played by john beck an actor who usually play very stiff and straight characters and this one is playing a guy called shoulders he's not called shoulders because he has broad shoulders but because he tends to drive the bus on the shoulder because he can't keep it on the road and he also has a problem with narcolepsy so uh, yeah narcolepsy is a serious issue but in the context of a bus driver it is played for laughs 
one of the things the movie does pastiche very well is the jerry-rigged kind of solutions to problems that a lot of these disaster movies have where somebody has to do something extraordinary and unusual and basically break the machine that they're in to fix it which is something that happened a lot in um airport type movies and all those other disaster movies and particularly things like the terry inferno where they basically have to do a lot of things to wreck the building in order to rescue the people in this one they do some stuff like the bus stops on the edge of a cliff it's very much an italian job right at the end of the italian job with the buses teetering on the edge of a cliff it's very much like this enormous articulated atomic powered bus is stuck on the end of a cliff and they've got to do something to redistribute the balance and rather than putting everybody at the back the way they did in the italian job they've got enormous amounts of beverages on board which are um, at the front of the bus in tanks but they then pump them to the back of the bus to flood the kitchen of the bus full of soft drink which is totally stupid but it does have that feel of the kind of jerry-rigged and makeshift solutions to problems that a lot of these disaster movies have there's this all kind of oblique fart joke in the movie where the bus uh they decided to take it up to 90 miles an hour because there's a sweet spot at 90 miles an hour where all wind resistance because of the construction of the bus dies away so they've got to kind of rattle the bus going up through 30 40 50 60 miles an hour this was at a time which due to the um oil crisis america had a 55 mile an hour speed limit on their roads and so they slowly ease the bus up through to 90 miles an hour and then suddenly all wind resistance stops and they call this phenomenon breaking wind which is a silly gag but it's kind of fun and, and having them test the bus while it's full of passengers on its inaugural trip rather than testing it beforehand is part of the silliness of this film and they have an unusual braking mechanism when the bus is going too fast down around a place and it's one of those things again where you really wonder why they chose that particular route but there's a place called harbinger harbinger curve where they the bus is out of control a bomb's just gone off because of course there's a bomb on the bus this is a disaster movie after all and they have to kind of use something to break the bus slightly the bus as it turns out has retractable flags of all nations on it so they unfurl the flags of all nations on the top of the bus to help with the wind resistance. So the bus ends up looking even more decorative and silly than it did originally. Then a pickup truck smashes into the side of the bus just at the rear of the piano bar and gets stuck there with basically three Okies in it. There's also a good uh, bar fight in the um, bus driver's bar where um, Dan Torrance is vilified by the other bus drivers. And there's a really funny bit, which I really liked a lot, where Dan is talking at the gravestone of a loved one, the way people do in movies. You know, they sit there and talk as if the person's still alive. There's a nice gag involving that and kind of ripping the guts out of that rather silly cinematic cliche. The way to tell someone's had a tragic life is to get them to bring flowers to the gravestone and then to talk to the dead person like they can listen to them. I don't know if people do that in real life, and I don't know anybody who has done it in real life, but it is one of those cliches and memes that are in movies, which never made a lot of sense to me. It's a kind of heavy-handed and visually obvious way for 
the idea to be put across that this person has had tragedy in their lives. There are a lot simpler ways to do it. The biggest star in the movie, of course, is the bus itself, which is enormous and silly and cool looking as well. Now, there was actually a real bus that was nearly as big as the big bus. It was made in Germany between 1975 and 1992. It was 18 metres long, 2.5 metres wide and 4 metres in height. And it was called the Neo Plan Jumbo Cruiser. It seated 170 passengers and has the Guinness World Record for being the largest bus. And I've got a picture of it up on the screen here at the moment, and it's fucking enormous. I would love to see this bus hit the Montague Street Bridge here in Melbourne. Like a lot of cities around the world, Melbourne has one bridge which cars, trucks, and buses seem to get stuck under. It's only got a fairly low clearance because there's a tram line above it. And regular as clockwork, in spite of everything that people do and all of the barriers and, and the little kind of hanging bollards above this road, which warn people that they can't drive large vehicles under the Montague Street Bridge. Regular as clockwork, the Montague Street Bridge eats trucks and buses. In fact, there was a tourist bus that hit it a couple of years ago. Unfortunately, a couple of people were injured. But the guy followed his GPS rather than looking ahead of him and slammed into the bridge. And it's kind of cool in a really sick way that cities have those kind of bridges. But we do, and I would love to see either the big bus or a Neoplan jumbo cruiser hit the Montague Street Bridge just for the fact that it would make a fantastic and click-worthy YouTube video. So if I was to do a most valuable player in this movie, apart from the bus, leaving the bus aside, it'd have to be Murphy Dunn playing the piano bar guy because he is just like the worst piano bar guy ever in the best possible way. Um, I will tell you a story, though. Once I went to a piano bar with a mate of mine uh, who's no longer a friend because he became very conservative. And so we went to a piano bar, I think around somewhere near Wynyard in Sydney, many moons ago because I was living in Sydney at the time. And the piano bar had one of those great big fish bowls on top of the piano where they, you, know, you throw tips into the guy and pay them for what they do. And they had the standard sign at the time on the piano bar fish bowl. And it said, request $5, feelings $50. So if somebody wanted them to play Morris Albert's feelings, 50 bucks. So, yeah, standard joke. So we decided we're going up there and, you know, we're a bit of jazz buffs, as you are. And I went up and asked the guy to play Lush Life, you know, Billy Strayhorn's Lush Life, jazz standard, fantastic, best versions, probably Johnny Hartman's version, which is, you know, you check it out on YouTube. So the guy says he doesn't know it. And so we kind of look at him and we go, okay, well, yeah, fair enough, you don't know how to play Lush Life. The other tune we picked for him to play, which is in the big bus, is Tangerine. So we go, play Tangerine, Johnny Mercer hit jazz standard so we ask him to play tangerine tangerine she is all they claim with her eyes of night and lips as bright as flame doesn't know tangerine so we've finished our gin and tonics because at this that stage of our sophistication gin and tonics were the go-to drink and we went down to Soup Plus and listened to a jazz trio or something like that. But ever since then, I've had this ideal image in my head of a piano bar where the piano player knows the songs, knows the songs you should know. But I've never found one. So if anybody knows of any of those things in Melbourne, Morris or one of the other experts, 
steering in the direction of a decent piano bar, will you, where they know the songs you sh- they should know. Anyway, Murphy Dunn in the big bus sang Tangerine just for a little bit. Very badly and with a very bad arrangement on the piano, but still he sang, he sang Tangerine, so he gets a shit ton of love from me because of that, because unlike that unnamed and forgotten piano bar guy in Sydney in the 1980s, he knew how to play Tangerine. And sing it, though, of course, he didn't sing it anywhere near as good as Nat King Cole just did. And on that cheerful note, I'm going to leave the big bus there. And when I get back from playing the trailer, we're going to talk about a movie that has absolutely no jazz standards in it at whatsoever. And it is the 1976 Dino De Laurentiis produced, directed by Michael Anderson movie, Orca, starring Richard Harris, Charlotte Rampling, Bo Derrick, Keenan Wynn and a shit ton of whales. The ancient Romans called him Orca or Kynus, Latin for bringer of death. He is without challenge the most powerful animal on the globe, the killer whale. Orca has 48 teeth set in two impressive rows. In some respects, the orca's intelligence may be even superior to man's. They remain loyal to one mate for life. As parents, they are exemplary, better than many human beings. And like human beings, they have a profound instinct for vengeance. An innocent creature is destroyed by an act of human cruelty. And the ultimate battle of man against nature begins. Dino De Laurentiis presents Orca. Can you commit a sin against an animal? He followed you. He saw you on the deck of the boat. They always remember the human being who had tried to harm them. He deliberately left you your boat because he wants to fight you on the sea. I won't do that. Now the fish have vanished from the fishing grounds. And it's all because of your whale. In fact, I won't fight him at all. You're not even man enough to accept the excitement of his challenge. I'll fight you! You're a vengeful son of a... Orca, starring Richard Harris, Charlotte Rampling, Will Sampson, Keenan Wynn. A spectacular adventure. From the depths of the sea... to the top of the world. It's going to be a fair fight on equal terms. A fight to the death. Nolan! Between the two most dangerous animals on Earth. What in hell are you? Man and Orca. Okay, that was Orca, also known as Orca the Killer Whale. 1977 American disaster horror film. It's also called Eco-Horror. Directed by Michael Anderson and produced by Dino De Laurentiis. It stars Richard Harris, Charlotte Rampling and Will Sampson. The film follows a male orca whale tracking down and getting revenge on a captain for the killing of the whale's pregnant mate. So it's not a particularly original insight, but this movie is basically Death Wish from the whale's point of view. Now, a friend of the podcast, Lee Gambon, did the commentary track 
for the Umbrella Entertainment version of Orca the Killer Whale, which has been released on Blu-ray here in Australia. And when I mentioned that I was watching it and I was going to podcast it, Lee said, listen to my commentary. And I've listened to about half of Lee's commentary, and he stacks it with tons of information about this movie, about the genre, and a lot of other stuff. But I kind of stopped halfway through because I didn't want to just parrot what Lee had said about the movie because I wanted to kind of keep my own insights fairly clear. Having said that, I will give a shout-out to Lee and let you know that if you're in Australia... Umbrella Entertainment have released the video. If you buy it from Umbrella Entertainment's website, it'll cost you 30 bucks. If you buy it down at JB Hi-Fi, where I bought my copy, it'll cost you 20 bucks. Just a little bit of a tip for the locals. The film's set in Canada, and Captain Nolan, played by Richard Harris, is an Irish-Canadian, because there's no way you're going to get Richard Harris to do a Canadian accent, who catches marine animals in order to pay off the mortgage on his boat, the Bumpo. The name of the boat may be a reference to Natty Bumpo, who was in a whole bunch of stories by James Fenimore Cooper, who did a pentalogy of novels known as The Leather Stocking Tales. And Natty Bumpo was a kind of hunter and um, Indian fighter, amongst other things, in the US when it was being colonised by white people. Uh, so maybe a reference to that. May it not. It may just have been something that was on the boat at the time. Who knows? probably lee gambon but um so he's out there hunting things he's got his mate with him played by keenan Wynn, who doesn't last too long in the movie um i don't know whether they had problems with uh, retaining his services or whether they just decided that they didn't want the old guy to last very long anyway um captain nolan harpoons the whale or attempts to harpoon the male whale clips its dorsal fin and skewers the female whale who is its monogamous partner because in this movie they tell us quite clearly that whales are monogamous and mate for life we now know based on all sorts of research done on the monogamy of animals that animals and birds are no more and no less monogamous than human beings are if they're monkeys they're a lot less monogamous than human beings are so nolan harpoons the female hoisted up by the tail onto a spar on the boat and plans to take it uh, back to port i suppose so that they can give it to a marine park i don't know exactly how that works in this context but it doesn't sound like hanging a whale up by its tail and carrying it across the water is necessarily the best way to get it to a marine park nonetheless uh, the whale has been injured in the capture and ground itself up against the propellers of the boat and as they're hanging it there and it's crying and making all sorts of squeals, the fetus of its baby drops out of its uterus and lands on the deck. Um, Richard Harris quickly hoses it off deck. And the orca whale, who is the poor Kersey of our little story, decides it's going to get revenge. It's pissed off, angry. It um, take They cut the corpse of the female orca away and the male orca pushes it with its nose onto a beach to kind of tell the people on shore that he's coming for them because this whale is pissed off and has a special skill set and is going to basically go Liam Neeson, Charles Bronson on their collective asses, particularly Richard Harris's. The whale then proceeds to do so. It wrecks a whole bunch of fishing boats. It wants the Bumpo and Captain Nolan to come out to see whether he can um, 
ripped the fuck out of them and to chase him up to the Arctic north of Canada, which indeed does happen. And shit gets real. We have Charlotte Rambling as well, playing Rachel Belford, the voice of reason. She's a, a cetacean expert who is not in love with Captain Nolan's lifestyle or business plan at all. We have Will Sampson from One Flew Over the Cookies Nest playing Umalak, a local indigenous guy who has beliefs about um, orcas and, like Rachel, is not in love with Captain Nolan's lifestyle or business plan. We have Bo Derek in the first released feature film role as Annie, who's one of the crew aboard the Bumpo. Uh, during the kerfuffle, she breaks her leg and then, in a very memorable scene, gets it chomped off by the orca. It's no real spoiler because that's in the trailer. Yes, I know that some people will say that even if it's in the trailer, it's a spoiler. But this movie is 40 years old, 42 years old, and chances are a lot of people have already seen it anyway. The orca itself is played by two real-life orcas that were in a marine land place. Uh, what's it called? Marine land of the Pacific. And their names are Yakka and Nepo, which I think were in Animaniacs as well. Um, and also they had a whole bunch of prosthetic whales, which substitute for the real ones in various scenes quite well. And in fact, as Lee points out in the commentary track, the whales in orca are done a lot better than the shark in Jaws was done. It really, they really are realistic and they do kind of work. And there is a, a quality of the orca's character that's portrayed in this film, which is lacking from Bruce's shark in Jaws. There are a few other people involved as well. We've got Robert Carradine, the youngest of the Carradine brothers, playing Ken, one of the other crew members, who's basically there for the sole purpose of getting eaten. And we have another crew member, Paul, played by Peter Hooten. Now, I don't think that Lee mentioned this in his commentary for Orca, but Peter Hooten was the first person to play Doctor Strange. He played Doctor Strange in the really bad 1970s television movie that was supposed to launch a TV series based on Doctor Strange, which also, I think the TV movie also had Jessica Walter in it and John Mills also got to give a bit of a shout out to the music by Ennio Morricone which is up with his best stuff of the era as well I mean I like early Morricone and a lot of the stuff he did for Eurocrime movies things like the stuff he did for Danger Diabolic and also the Sicilian clan but this is still pretty good it's got some kind of strident tonalities in it in various places that make it really work and it's not shabby Morricone at all it really is in some ways better than the movie deserves. Of course, it was, this was produced by Dino De Laurentiis, who also produced Danger Diabolic, as I recall. Now, of course, this came out in 1977, two years after Jaws broke the mould as far as blockbusters were concerned and created the phenomenon of the summer blockbuster movie. And a lot of people say you shouldn't compare this with Jaws, but they wouldn't have made this movie had Jaws not existed. And Dino De Laurentiis, who had just had an enormous hit with his remake of King Kong, bad though it was, wanted to make a movie that tops Jaws because Dino De Laurentiis was not a man who was overly afflicted with modesty. And in fact, he does thumb his nose at Jaws right at the start of the film, where a great white shark has its shit beaten out of it, literally, by an orca. Um, within the first 10 minutes of the movie. So that's how De Laurentiis was playing it. I mean, there are other influences as well, and, and they're not hard to find, 
Moby Dick being one, uh, man versus a, a kind of vengeful whale, is a story that's almost 170 years old. Based, you know, Moby Dick came out in 1851, and you've really got to make the comparison there because there is a lot of Ahab in Captain Nolan, even though he does sympathise with the whale because he too lost his wife and child in a, a, an accident. So they kind of make that analogy there. He's obsessed with the whale, and Richard Harris really does give us you know, a pretty good acting effort in this movie, even though most of the time he's reacting against a blank ocean. Or in the case of the final scenes, which are supposed to be set in the Arctic, but were actually filmed in Malta on a, an almost ice set that they created on the water. Possibly because the first thing you think of when you're thinking, how will I film a scene set in the Arctic ice? Malta's your go-to place, really, isn't it? But there's also another analogy you can make, which is kind of interesting. In a sense, Captain Nolan created the monster. He created the monster orca that is going after himself that literally obliterates the whole town quite cleverly and with the foresight and the knowledge of technology that orcas don't have. But in a real sense, Captain Nolan created the monster which then leads us to the other analogy you can make particularly in the final scenes set in the arctic and that is with mary shelley's frankenstein because the climactic confrontation between man and monster occur in the arctic in mary shelley's frankenstein frankenstein's such a versatile story in some ways it's like they say in george axelrod's paris when it sizzles and william holden gets that great line about Frankenstein and My Fair Lady being the same story, they just have a different ending. So there are you can make analogies with any movie with a large theme and a whole bunch of other films and a whole bunch of other literary works if you really just try a little bit. Like The Guns of Navarone, seen from the German point of view, is Die Hard with a whole bunch of commandos. The director of Orca was Michael Anderson, who's got one of the most generic names possible but he made some good movies in his day and uh let's see what we've got here i've got his imdb up at the moment he was the director of the damn busters a movie that peter jackson was going to remake but couldn't get around the problem of the name of the dog you can look that one up for yourself all the fine young cannibals which had um robert wagner and natalie wood in it he did operation crossbow with richard harris in 1965 one of the best Eurospy movies in 66, The Quiller Memorandum with George Siegel. Um, a pious little piece of work called The Shoes of the Fisherman in 68. Um, the bad George Pal, Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze, which is a current work that uh, I think Shane Black is scripting for, and he and Dwayne Johnson are looking at making that into a bit of a franchise as well when Dwayne Johnson stops fighting giant monsters with apes. If you haven't seen the trailer for his new movie, Rampage, it looks like it's going to be fun. But anyway, uh, Michael Anderson also directed Logan's Run, which I'm not particularly a fan of. He then did Orca. He did a movie called Nessie, which was cancelled in pre-production. Um, and then his career kind of tapered off with things like the adaptation of John Varley's novel Millennium, which gave John Varley the writer writer's block for a long time and uh ended up with a movie called the new adventures of pinocchio in 1999 which had martin lando udo Kier, and warwick davis in it so anderson yeah never a kind of a-list 
director, but he didn't do a bad job. Oops, got that wrong, by the way. I've got to kind of go back a bit. Operation Crossbow didn't have Richard Harris in it. It had George Papad, Trevor Howard, John Mills, and Richard Johnson in it. I got it mixed up with the heroes of Telemark. By the way, I think there's something kind of nice about the fact that Bo Derek's career has come full circle. She started out with Orca, and the most recent thing I've seen her in was one of the Sharknado movies. So basically, large, nasty things in the ocean seem to have been the front and back end of Bo Derek's cinematic career. I kind of like Charlotte Rampley in this movie too, though. I think she's not given a lot to work with. Her character's very generic. And she does give a bit of a voiceover, which I think is, even though other people think it's fine, for me it really doesn't work. You don't need it to understand the character of Captain Nolan or what he's doing. Nonetheless, she does um, have a bit of voiceover narration there explaining things about uh, whales and also things about Richard Harris's character, Nolan. But it kind of thematically and structurally doesn't sit well with the film for me. It's not particularly my favourite Richard Harris movie either. There are a whole bunch of them that I like a lot. Um, I liked him in A Man Called Horse, which is kind of almost torture porn for white guys. Um, He actually did a movie with Doris Day called Caprice, which is okay. I liked him as King Arthur and Camelot. I think he really brought his A-game to that. And then, of course, you can't go past this sporting life in 1963. And a movie that I liked, which I saw in the early 70s, which he co-directed with a guy called Uri Zohar. And it's a movie called Bloomfield in 1971, where he plays a former football star in Israel. And it kind of works. It's got a good cast. too. Romy Schneider's in it as well. And a whole bunch of Israeli actors. But I was really impressed with it when I first saw it in the early 1970s. Going to have to um, check that one out again, I think. It may well be worth looking at for a future podcast even. I do think it's a little bit of a shame that most people of younger generations know Richard Harris predominantly for playing Dumbledore in the first few Harry Potter movies. Because I think he's, he was much more than that. Of course, he was one of those hard-drinking Irish actors who wasn't scared to throw a punch when he was pissed. And as inevitably happens with that sort of person, Oliver Reed being one of the other examples, their talents tend to diminish over time. And, and Peter O'Toole as well. I mean, there were a lot of hard-drinking actors who really you wanted to see them do some really fine roles in the later life. And O'Toole did it more than the other two. But I really would have liked to have seen Richard Harris treat his career with more respect in some ways later in life. And I think that it would have been a fun and interesting thing to see that. Though I do think his Dumbledore is superior to Michael Gambon's. I think there was a charm and a whimsy to his Dumbledore that Gambon didn't quite nail. And by the way, that movie I just mentioned, the Richard Harris one, Bloomfield, is also known as The Hero. You may be able to find a copy of it. I just found a copy of it, in fact, and I'd really be interested to re-watch it, even though it is kind of football-based, and that's not necessarily my thing. As I recall through the fog of time, it was quite an enjoyable film. So just to wrap up, having digressed a hell of a lot in this review of Orca, just to wrap up, it's definitely a part of that 1970s eco-horror thing that went all the way from Jaws and Frogs, even in the early 1970s through to prophecy and movies like that in the 80s. 
Um, it is a bit of fun to watch that. Day of the Animals I like as well. I really should try to do Day of the Animals for a podcast. I'll add it to the ever-growing list of movies that I should podcast about. But it was fun revisiting Orca. I watched it one and a half times because I haven't quite completed watching it with Lee Gambon's commentary. It does have some beautiful visuals of the Orcas, but I really think that it's um, not as good as it should have been in some ways because... I would have liked to have seen more of the character stuff in there because the character stuff is the stuff that nailed Jaws. Jaws isn't about the shark and about shooting it and about you're going to need a bigger boat. It's about the character stuff that leads up to that that makes it really interesting. And if there's a flaw that separates Jaws from Orca, it is that character building that just doesn't occur in a skillful way in Orca as it does in Jaws character development is so important in this kind of movie one of the things i mean you you can learn from any number of movies die hard teaches us that character development knowing who john mclean is is as important as the revelations that happen afterwards all of that stuff matters and character development in any kind of film even an exploitation film like this pays enormous dividends that's why shane black movies work so well and why a movie like once upon a time in Venice, even though it's not that great. At least it has some character development and a protagonist who's very much embedded in his community, which kind of helps us understand and accept a lot of the clumsy and silly stuff that happens in that movie. So I'm big the word for this week is character development. And yes, I know that's two words. But anyway, I'm going to wrap this one up. Um, Thank you for listening. Next podcast, the Martian Drive-In Podcast, my good friend Grant Watson and I are going to Flint's Gralic and Vivisect Ready Player One, live together with a microphone in between us. And we may broaden things out to talk about other things, but Ready Player One is going to be the main course. So anyway, thank you for listening. And look after yourselves. Keep your powder dry and your eyes on the horizon. Um, I'll be back with Martian Driving, as I said, next week and with another Paleo Cinema podcast in two weeks. Take care of yourselves. Give each other a hug. And I'll be back soon. And, of course, here are the podcast credits to acknowledge, thank, and worship the people who support the podcast at patreon.com slash paleocinema. By the way, there's still time to get in for the big draw on the 17th of April where I'm going to be drawing out a bunch of stuff to send to Patreon supporters to thank some of them at least for the immense support that they offer the podcast and help me keep it going. Take care of yourselves and I'll be back very soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of film credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the caterer, Grant the Technicolor consultant, Claire the script doctor, Gary the prop master, Morris our musical director, Jan our dialect coach, Armin our key grip, Matt the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine our scientific advisor, Julia the casting director, Chris the camera operator, Christopher the gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, the second unit director. Paul, the special makeup effects director. 
Tammy the Donut Wrangler, Tim our New York Unit Director, Steve our Spiritual Advisor, Steve Sullivan our Script Doctor, Dylan the Goat Wrangler, Eric the Set Security Lead, Richard H the Set Photographer, Mark D the Extra, David L the Extra, and Richard C our Transport Co-Captain, plus Andrew our necessary film critic. We have Kerry H, our accountant, and Kerry L, our other spiritual advisor. Thank you so much to all the patrons for dipping into their pockets and helping out with the podcast. This has been a Paleo Cinema Martian Drive-In production. The end.